right, welcome to Breitbart News Daily. Mike Slater, thanks for being here. We're going to talk to Francis Martel coming up a little bit, the Breitbart World Editor, in my uh, uh, frequent attempt to stump her. One of these days, I'm going to ask her a question about a country and she'll be like, you know what, I don't know. I was going to ask about Cyprus today. Cyprus is right there. It's right next to Israel, a little island. just right off the coast. No one ever talks about Cyprus. What are they doing? I should have asked her. I'll ask her next time. Uh, but once again, she remains unstumped. So we'll talk to Francis in just a little bit. But first, uh, this is the segment we had right before Francis. Our attempt to put a bow on uh, our conversations this week about rules of engagement. We talked about the Laconia affair. Just another example of, of what would you do? What would you do? What's your call uh, if you were the one in charge? These are not hypotheticals. These are real things that did happen and real things that will happen again. With the, short, the, st- the first story we shared was from 286 B.C. So this stuff's been going on for a long time. And then we did some Bible thumping. So here's your Bible thumping warning about war and soldiers. Here it is. You're going to hear stories today in the news about the rabbi who stood up and uh, got Joe Biden at a fundraiser speech to say he's for uh, a pause in the Israeli attacks. This rabbi, this rabbi is a woman. So we have female rabbi, not a thing. But then just to throw you just a little extra curveball here because it's 2023. The rabbi is indeed a dude. It's a female rabbi who's definitely a dude. So we have a transgender rabbi. I'm, I'm as positive as one can be. I'm looking at a picture of this rabbi, Jessica. Her name's Jessica, and she has a beard. So I don't know what to do about anything anymore, but I think the rabbi's a dude, and I don't know. Maybe that makes it okay then. She, he kind of looks like Will Ferrell in Zoolander. If that rings a bell by any chance. She, he is a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, a progressive anti-Zionist organization which supports boycott, divest, and sanctions. That's, that's amazing. So anyway, you'll, you'll hear the media legitimize her, him, as a, uh, as a rabbi. A rabbi stood up. Because that's what, that's what he said. He stood up and said, as a rabbi, I call for peace. You're like, eh, you're not a rabbi. But okay, whatever. All right, I have, uh, thank you for yesterday's conversation about rules of engagement and the hypothetical I threw you away. I hope it got you thinking. I hope you took those questions and, and brought them home. Talk to your uh, kids about them. Talk to friends. It's an interesting conversation point, I think. Uh, I have one last thought on it. Well, I have many thoughts on it. We'll see how many we can fit. Uh, let me say this first, though. I have no idea if what I read here is true. No clue. I'm not reporting this as a thing that is going to happen. Okay, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying this is a thing that's going to happen. I only make this point to say that my feeble brain is nowhere near as smart as the special forces guys who are who have been brainstorming ways to rescue the hostages. But I, this idea was thrown out, and I don't know if this is thrown out by anyone who knows anything about anything. But... How do we, like, it was 300 miles. It was a 300-mile spiderweb, booby-trapped maze of tunnels underground. 
And we talked to a Navy SEAL about this. And I'm like, what do you do? How do you rescue these people? And he seemed way more hopeful than I was that, that they can actually do this. And it seems impossible to me. You don't know who's around. You don't know where to go. But, but even if you did have a map somehow, you, you don't know what's around any corner. You don't know who's around any corner. It's, it's, a, it's a disaster. But this idea was thrown out there to pump some sort of gas underground into the tunnels some sort of gas that would cause everyone to pass out or some sort of nerve gas or something. I don't know what's a lot was around cause everyone to pass out. Then the special forces can move through the tunnels, at least not worried about people shooting at them. You know, some corners can be booby trapped or whatever, but, and then maybe uh, grab some people, carry them out and leave. And then the, Hamas guys can wake up a couple hours later after it wears off and say, what, what happened? How about that? Now, I, again, I have no idea. Like maybe someone threw that out there and the Navy SEALs are like, no, we can't do that, you idiots. Or something. I don't know. But I was like, I was like oh, I never even thought of that. Now, let's say that is a real possibility, something like that. We were talking about rules of engagement. Yesterday I shared very briefly, but uh, share the stories of the, the like the naked guy, the guy pulling up his trousers, the guy enjoying the sunrise, the guy smoking a cigarette, and during World War One and World War Two, and the, and the enemy didn't shoot, or the, the whoever, the British, whoever it was, didn't shoot the enemy because they were in the bathtub. All right, well, how about this? Let's say we pump a gas into the tunnels, the Hamas guys pass out, and our seals go through the tunnels, and you see a bunch of Hamas terrorists lying on the ground, passed out because of the gas we gassed them with. They're clearly terrorists. They're underground. They're armed. They are combatants. Do you shoot them? Do you kill them? They're going to wake up in a couple hours. What do you do? But he's just laying there. That's even more uh, vulnerable than taking a bath. Or pulling up his trousers. He's just laying there. You shoot him? Or what, you got you to gotta pick him up? Carry him out too? You got to make him a prisoner? So now we got to rescue the hostages and we come back for these guys? Or do we, or do we just let them? So, so we either shoot them, carry them out of the tunnel, and keep them as a prisoner, or we just let them wake up and now they're still Hamas. What do you do there? Because clearly, well, if you shoot them and kill the Hamas people as they're passed out, you would prevent at least them from causing future problems and you could be saving lives. So what do you do in that situation? You shoot them or not? So based on what I've been researching on rules of engagement, you're not allowed. Now again, I don't think if anyone did, I don't think anyone would get in trouble for it. But you're not supposed to shoot someone like that. If we don't, I'm thinking if you don't, you you would you would hope that that would send a message of our just unimaginable strength and power over you that you can be a uh, hundred feet underground, seemingly safe in a tunnel, and we we still could have killed you <laughs> from point blank range, but we didn't. 
But did that do any good for anyone? Do you think that person will repent? Will they be like, oh, you're right, this was wrong. I love Israel now. Or at least I won't do anything bad to Israel anymore. Would that be enough? Interesting. But anyway, I really only present that to when I heard the gas. I was like, oh, yeah, gas. Never thought of that. I'm sure there are very smart people thinking of a lot of things to try to rescue these hostages I've never thought of. Although, we're three weeks in now. So there's got to be a little bit of, like, what are we doing here at this point, right? So the last rules of engagement story I want to share for now is the Laconia affair. So World War II, or prior to World War II, I should say, the rules of warfare on the high seas. If a military ship encounters a merchant ship, so let's say a German military ship encounters a British merchant ship. It's got T on it, let's say. Can you blow it to smithereens? Because it could have guns on it. Or it could have other war-related items on it. So what can you do? What are you allowed to do? So civilized countries had to come together and figure this out. So the rules were the merchant ship can be stopped, seized, and brought to shore. So you don't have to just let it go. You can, in fact, take it. If the merchant seamen put up a fight, you can fight back enough to win. So the Germans, uh, they see a, mer- a British merchant ship and they try to take it and the British take out their guns and shoot back. Oh, game on now. We can, we can kill you. If they give up, you can't fight them. You're not allowed just to blow it up just because you see it. If you can't bring the ship back to port, these are the rules of engagement. If you can't bring it back to port, maybe too far away or whatever, you're allowed to sink the ship but you have to bring all the people on the ship on board your ship. So like, oh, we see your boat here. It's full of a, there could be weapons on it or it doesn't matter what's on it. We're just going to sink it because we want to. Uh, and, uh, but, but, but we have to take you on our ship. We can't just kill you as long as you're not putting up a fight. Those were the rules. They kind of make sense. I'm okay with those rules. I think I'd agree with those rules. Then the Germans invented the U-boat. Their submarine. And this changes the game. Just like all, all new weapon technologies that are invented change the game. So the U-boat changed the game. Because the Germans are saying, well, hold on. We can't fire torpedoes once we come to the surface. So if we come to the surface and say, hey, merchant ship, we'd like to board you peacefully, and they start attacking us, we're dead. So we can't take the risk of coming to the surface to see that. So we're just going to blow it, <laughs> blow it up. And we can't take anyone from the ship on board the submarine because there's no room. It's tiny. It's little here. What are we going to do? It's more max, max capacity. So what are the new rules of engagement on the high seas if you're a submarine? Oh, darn it. Now we got to rethink this. So what did the Germans do to solve this problem? They just decided to sink every ship on sight and to hack with everyone on it. Just kill everyone, just kill, the sh- kill everyone, kill, blow the ship up. That was their plan. Fast forward 
to the Laconia Order, as it's now called. 1942, this uh, admiral, German admiral, gave that order to sink all the merchant ships and let everyone drown and die. And this admiral was tried for war crimes after the after the war, the Nuremberg trials. But they did not find him guilty on that point. The Nuremberg trials found him innocent. Which leads me to want to read every single thing about the Nuremberg trials. Because what even was that? Like who like who was in charge of that whole operation? I don't know anything about him. But they said they I mean that seems like you you think they would have thrown the book at all of them. Without, it's like a show trial. It seems like it wasn't much of a show trial if they found this guy innocent for this. It seems like the Nuremberg trials were a, quite a thoughtful affair. Now Germany's saying, well, like, listen, we blew up all these ships, but they were all carrying arms. They said they were merchant ships, but they weren't. That made them military targets. Okay, fair enough. What about the people? Well, the Nuremberg trials, they, they, they decided that the military necessity of the German U-boat trumped saving civilian lives. It was so dangerous for the U-boat to surface in an attempt to save British lives. It made such little obvious sense to do that. It was so risky that the courts decided the U-boats were not committing a war crime by just killing everyone on the British ship, no questions asked, and leaving them to die. Isn't that amazing? So, Laconia incident, September 12th, 1942. Uh, Laconia was the British ship hit by uh, the German U-boat. There were 268 British service members on it. 268 British uh, service members and their families. 268. Turns out there were 1,800 Italian prisoners of war. Uh-oh. So the Germans blow up the ship, and then they figure out, oh, darn it. There's guys on our side on it. Ugh. So the order was to rescue all the Italians they could and let the British and their families die adrift in the water. And that's what they did. Men, women, and children left alone in the ocean to die. So was that the right thing for the Germans to do in that case? They saved their team. But they're the ones who caused the problem. The boat was fine before they blew it up. Or was that an acceptable act of war? Pretty interesting. I'm not necessarily asking for specific calls on that one. I'm not throwing out. Although if you'd like. 8695Patriot. I'd like to, to wrap up this topic. It is Friday. This topic of war and rules of engagement. We spent a lot of time on this on in the 8 o'clock hour. The first couple of days of the week. And then yesterday in this hour. A few people have made the point that we're just not ready for war. We're not ready, just emotionally, just as a people. We're just not ready for war. And I think that's right. Just as a metaphor, 70% of our active duty military is overweight. That's just a metaphor. It's true. I think of John Stuart Mill. You've heard this quote before. War is an ugly thing, but it's not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feelings, which thinks nothing is worth a war, is much worse. When a people are used as mere human instruments for firing cannon or thrusting bayonets, 
in the service and for selfish purposes of a master, such a war degrades a people. But a war to protect other human beings against tyrannical injustice, a war to give victory to their own ideals of right and good, and which is their own war, carried on for an honest purpose by their free choice, is often the means of their regeneration. A man who has nothing which he's willing to fight for, nothing which he cares more about than he does his own personal safety is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. As long as justice and injustice have not terminated their ever-renewing fight for ascendancy in the affairs of mankind, human beings must be willing, when need is, to do battle for the one against the other. I'm not saying this is even that moment you decide, but these moments will come. These decisions will come for us much closer to home. We, many people today, have a very uh, pampered, I was going to say idealistic, I like the word pampered, a very pampered belief that war is an aberration, that war means something is broken, that war means something has gone terribly wrong. And I think we need to change our mindset to a more realistic mindset. That war is, and it's unfortunately so, no question, it's unfortunately so, but it is a part of life. I don't seek it out, but you can't avoid it completely. The arrogance to believe that like we're done with the wars, they called World War I the war to end all wars. How could you even think that? Well, maybe you could. If it was so, it was so brutal, you're like, we're never going to do this again. And then 20 years later, we did. I'm like, well, okay, all right. We really learned a lesson now. We're not going to do it again. Five years later, we had Korea. Okay, all right. Now we're not, we're done with the war. Two years later, we have Vietnam. And here we are still there. We said 20 years of two, two wars were 20 years long. And we still think uh, that war is unnatural. No, that's pretty natural. Now, uh, a uh, trigger warning here. I'm going to quote the Bible. So change the station now. Slater is going to Bible thump. Whoa. Heaven forbid I listen to anyone quote anything out of the Bible. But I will. Because the Bible is the oldest book I've ever studied at length. Although Gilgamesh, I read Gilgamesh. It's short. That's a short one. That's the oldest written story known to man. And that proves my point too, if we want to talk about Gilgamesh, about war. But the Bible is full of war, chock full of war. On my podcast, Politics by Faith, recently we've gone over a few of the ancient battles in the, uh, in the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, you know, a lot of people will uh, use some New Testament scriptures to say uh, to be pacifists. Blessed are the peacemakers is one of them. Right? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We can chat about that if you want. That's a good one. Blessed are the peacemakers. What Jesus is saying here is, uh, blessed are people who spread the gospel. How many of the anti-war protesters are out there spreading the gospel? None. But they're quick to rub a scripture in your face in order to manipulate you. Right, but check out these interesting moments in the New Testament. So Luke 3, uh, John the Baptist. People are asking, they say, how do we repent? What do we do? 
And he says, oh, you know, this is what you got to do. You got to do this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, hey, tax collectors. They, they get, the tax collectors came to him. They said, oh, what do we do? And he said, oh, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Great. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Notice John the Baptist didn't say, well, stop being a soldier. That's your first order of business. Knock that off. No, he tells the soldier, don't rob people. Don't use your force for evil. Don't make false accusations, right? Because you have this extra power and authority because you're a soldier. Don't use it for bad and be content with your pay. That's what he told the soldier. John the Baptist had every opportunity to say, oh, you can't be a soldier. In Acts 10, Cornelius was a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. It says he and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Peter said, uh, we've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. So here we have a warrior and he was baptized. And nowhere, anywhere in all of this, is there anything that, and then he gave up being a soldier. He stopped being a soldier after that. After Peter shamed him for his previous profession, when he was unrepentant as a soldier, now he was baptized and he lives a new life as a peacenik hippie. And right, that's not it. Nothing about that. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter took out his sword and cut off the guy's ear. And Jesus said, put the sword back in its place. Notice Jesus didn't say, what are you doing with a sword? Peter, no swords. Come on, man. Jeez. Jesus said, put it back in its sheath. Later on, Paul describes Christians as soldiers in Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God. Shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, all that. We did uh, our podcast just the other day, yesterday, two days, last two days. Uh, is about 2 Timothy 2, where Paul is giving advice to Timothy to stop being timid. Don't be timid. Be bold. Be bold. And he tells Timothy, you need to be like a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. That's what he says. Just four verses. Boom. Right there. Boom, 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 boom. So in the podcast, we talked about different aspects. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a teacher? What's the posture? What's the posture of a teacher? What's the posture of a soldier? What's the posture of a, of a, uh, Athlete, what's the posture of a farmer? Farmer's my favorite one of all the four. And that's who you, Christian, need to be. That's who you, Timothy, need to be like. And he uses soldier. There's no way God would have used as a metaphor like a prostitute. Like He, w- he wouldn't have used a sinful profession as a, as a metaphor for being a Christian. Well, Paul, well, well, Timothy, let me tell you what you need to be like. You need to be like a, a farmer... An athlete and a prostitute. You know those prostitutes. You need to be a lot. He would never do that. But they use soldier. Interesting, huh? So, war exists. <laughs> that's my that's my. But we're acting like it doesn't. That's the thing. We're acting like it shouldn't. It does. The goal is peace, of course. The Bible's full of that. The Bible starts with peace, ends with peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But with Satan and sin, there's no peace today. 
866-95-PATRIOT. 866-95-PATRIOT. We take a couple calls here before Francis joins us. Let's go to uh, go to Rob in Florida. What's going on, Rob? Good morning. Hey, Mike. How are you, sir? I appreciate the uh, the insights. Thanks, um, Rob. I just wanted to weigh in. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I just said thank you. Oh, okay. Um, I just wanted to weigh in a little bit. I think that that we've been taking war a little bit too lightly. I think that in uh, World War One, yeah, we don't want to do all that again. World War Two comes up, and we don't want to do all that again. But then, ever since then, we lost the desire to win. It seems like to me we're we're vacillating between things that are getting our people in harm's way and killed. War is is a terrible thing, and it should be, our Constitution says, declared by our Congress and voted on, and we're going to do it. And by God, if we're going to do it, we need to do it well. We need to kill people and break things. And that itself is a deterrence to this other little forays into nitpicking at us from all sides. And I am a, I am a Christian man. I am a, a, a very heartful, felt person and don't wish harm on anybody. But once a line is crossed and you cross that Rubicon, you have to prosecute that war to win. Otherwise, all we're doing is filling body bags with our youngest and brightest, mm. and we're not doing the things that we need to do to deter future wars. If you look back through history and some of the most brutal warriors, Genghis Khan, uh, I'm not saying that they're good, but when they said they were going to go to war, that was what it was. It wasn't this political theater that we have going on today. And when you strip it down to its basis, its base thing, we're sending our men and women to places with unrealistic expectations, Mm. unrealistic goals, no exit strategies, and no real rules of engagement that allow our people to prosecute the war the way that it's supposed to be done. And I'm very frustrated with that, and I think that if, much like if you say the death penalty is a deterrent to murder, well, getting your ass kicked in war is a pretty good deterrent to war. And that's kind of my thoughts on this thing, and I'm very frustrated with our political class that's out there that doesn't have the stomach to go ahead and actually say what is right and fight for what is right, and they'll nibble around the edges like goldfish at your feet while you're standing in the water. It, yes. It's it's frustrating to me, Mike. Yeah, well, Rob, very, very well said. Very articulate, very well said. There's a lot of amens uh, to your thoughts there. Thank you very much. I, I would say that, that that way of waging war, as you described, uh, only makes things worse and is maybe worse than the war itself that means of going about it. How about that for a counterintuitive thought? The intent may be to be nicer and kinder, but the end result is, uh, is, even, is even worse than if you just, do, if you just win. Hmm. talking to Francis because no, no one in the media talks about really any of these other countries, any of the other players. No one understands all the other motivations. No one, no one can set, tell you, Oh, well 
what Hezbollah really wants, oh yeah, the king and queen of Jordan, their connection is this. Oh, Qatar? Yeah, so Qatar, what, what they want is, like no one can clarify and make sense of the world like Francis can. It's unbelievable. Here she is. Francis, hello. How are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me back. Thank you. I'm excited to get a, uh, a lay of the land from you on how things are going here in the Middle East and get all these other players involved. No, no one else in the media talks about anyone else, like any, any other player, any other motivation, any other group or faction. So I just want to ask you about all that. So uh, the other day I saw this massive rally in um, Turkey and with like, like hundreds of thousands of people, huge. And the president of Turkey was, seems like he was signifying that their military could get involved in, in Israel and Hamas. Uh, do you think that's possible? Is that a thing? Um, it, it's not impossible, but it's unlikely. However, um, this is an issue that is very uniting in Turkey. The general population is very anti-Israel, very pro-Hamas, um, and the president, Erdogan, is very pro-Hamas, too. So this is easy brownie points, you know, for the, for the administration to um, develop their political capital. So hmm. that's what this is all about. Should we be concerned that our quote-unquote ally Turkey is generally so pro-Hamas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a NATO power, right? If, if Erdogan does anything crazy, um, he could invoke Article 5 and involve all of us in, in a huge war. So this is um, very much alarming, but it's also not new. Um, we had a few years ago, there was an incident where Erdogan ordered his troops to shoot down a Russian fighter jet in Syria. And that was, that was everyone held their breath for a moment there because a NATO power shot down a Russian jet in a third-party country. Um, and luckily, it amounted to nothing, even though uh, I think a few months later, someone murdered the Russian ambassador to Turkey also. <laughs> so that, you know, we've had moments like this where Turkey has been this wild-card NATO member that has been antagonizing our enemies to the point that, you know, it looks like we could get involved. But it hasn't gotten there quite yet. And Turkey is one of so many actors in the Middle East that are somewhat unpredictable and could turn this powder keg into a world war that it's, it's really hard to keep, you know, to look at one country and say, this is the problematic country. How do you pronounce Turkey now? We're not supposed to call it Turkey anymore, are we? Uh, yeah, they want us to say Turkey, um, but I, it's Turkey. There's nothing <sighs> offensive about calling it Turkey. <laughs> okay. I, I don't see the problem Listen, with Fran- calling the country. If France is keeping with Turkey, I'm staying with it too. Yeah, what a bummer that they're so uh, they're so crazy. It'd be nice. So, like, do, do you think we, like, when push comes to shove, does America, can we tell Turkey what to do, right? Like, can we be like, hey, you need to do this now, and they fall in line, or have we lost that authority with these countries around the world generally? Uh, we have the authority. We've lost the will to use it. And and the example that proves this is when President Trump was in office. Uh, Erdogan held an American hostage, uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson. He was arrested for spreading Christianity in Turkey, which is not even a crime, but the, the Turkish judicial system is, is complete kangaroo court. Um, and he was taken hostage essentially because Erdogan wanted concessions from the U.S. government. Um, he was interested in us arresting uh, Fethullah Gulen, who is a, a cleric who lives in Pennsylvania. Um, and Trump 
single-handedly destroyed the Turkish economy. He just um, enacted a, a series of sanctions that targeted Turkey's biggest exports, and the economy just sank, and Pastor Brunson was freed, and, and that was the end of that. So there, there are concrete examples of us having the authority and the ability to essentially keep Turkey from doing anything too belligerent. Um, I just don't trust that President Biden is ever going to use that authority. It's an amazing story that I've never heard of, of course, uh, and I'm Googling it as you talk, as I always do, honestly. Uh, Francis, I'm like, that can't be true. And I look and it's like, oh, she's <laughs> sure enough. Geez, she's right again. Um, and I wasn't sure where you, you were know, going actually, with it. If- Go ahead. If readers are interested in, in Pastor Brunson, we interviewed him a few years back when he came out. So if you go to Breitbart, there's there's really good we, – we did really good work on Pastor Brunson, and he was gracious enough to speak to us, I believe. So nice. um, there's, yeah, a lot yeah, of good info great. on that, on that um, anecdote. And I wasn't sure where you were going with that because I, I wasn't sure – because you started with, well, we just don't use it anymore. Like President Trump, I wasn't sure if you were going to use an example of President Trump not using that <laughs> No, strength. no. And I thought that would be an odd turn, but uh, indeed it made the turn I thought it would. Okay, that's Turkey. So everyone keep in mind Turkey. Um, let's go to Jordan. I don't think we talked since the Queen of Jordan uh, gave her whatever that was, interview with Amanpour. Um, what's up with Jordan? Why? What's up with like the Queen, of, like the King and Queen of these countries? Like what is that? They look very Western well, they're too. In a, yes, they're in a very precarious position. They're kind of like the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, where the royalty wants to live lavishly, live in peace, and have kind of Western comforts. And the general population of Jordan is very anti-Israel, very anti-American, um, and very pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian. And so they have to worry not to rock the boat too much because they there will be a revolution. There'll be another Arab Spring, and they'll be overthrown and killed. So nobody wants to end up like Qaddafi. Um, so they, they pay lip service to their general population. Um, but their policies, you know, the big takeaway with Jordan and, and Egypt also, to me, is that their, their leaders will talk about how much they love Palestinians, how much they want Palestinians to be safe and free. But the second anyone talks about either of these countries taking in a single Palestinian refugee so that these people can escape Hamas, the doors shut. Um, Egypt especially has been very enthusiastically saying we will not take a single Palestinian. The Jordanians too. And, and it's because they're afraid that um, if they get too many Palestinians in their country, number one, the, the entire objective of the quote-unquote Palestinian cause, which is to carve a state out of Israel, disappears because these people just get integrated into other Arab countries. And number two, they're afraid that if they take these refugees, they might take in some Hamas people by mistake, and then you have terrorists on their land trying to attack Israel, and then you get Jordan involved in a war with Israel. So they're very worried about that. Um, so they have to say things that placate the general population. They have to avoid getting involved directly with Israel because they, it is not in their political interest to have a war with Israel. Um, so they're walking a tightrope, basically. It's very. If you look at the king and queen of Jordan, they look like the governor and first lady of you know, Illinois or something. I mean, they look you know, as Western <laughs> yeah. as could possibly be. How did they get away with that? Like even what they wear, right? I mean, he's wearing just like a Western suit and she looks like Melania with her dresses like what is that isn't that weird yeah well they're the king and queen you know you can do whatever you want if you're the king and queen you just can't you know you have to avoid the french revolution scenario not, <laughs> yes not that would, goal number one <laughs> make note if i ever become a king avoid french revolution scenario 
Um, but it's weird because like in Saudi Arabia, they don't they don't dress in their Western attire. So it's odd. Um, okay, let me give you uh, another country here. Uh, Lebanon. And we talked a lot about Lebanon last week. What's the latest with Hezbollah? Because that was everyone's initial concern about this going into World War Three. What do we know about them lately? Well, today, um, Hassan Nasrallah, who's the head of Hezbollah, is supposed to be giving this gigantic speech in Lebanon. Um, everyone who's, you know, all of all of us geopolitical nerds have been watching the setup of the podium in Lebanon where he's going to speak. And there's some speculation that he's going to declare war on Israel. I don't think that's very likely because um, it's there's sort of underhanded interest for Hezbollah here, right? Hezbollah gets a lot of its funding from Iran, which means that it competes with Hamas and with Palestinian Islamic Jihad for Iranian money. So if Hamas is just destroyed and Hamas is a Sunni organization, Hezbollah is Shia, then that's somebody that's money that's going to go to Hezbollah that would have gone to Hamas. So there's there's a financial interest for Hezbollah for Hamas to not exist. And and they also might not be prepared for a full-scale war against the IDF. The IDF is a world-class military. Hezbollah is a terror group. Um, so they're, they're going to be very careful about it. But obviously, they support anything that hurts Israel. Their, their end goal is the destruction of Israel. Um, and they're, you know, they're a Lebanese political party. They're a terrorist group, but they control this country that is probably one of the, the top three worst managed countries in the world. Um, and so they have to also be careful that the Lebanese people don't just, you know, revolt. And, and there's, again, another Arab Spring scenario. So they're, they're also kind of in an interesting position. Um, I think the big speech is going to be about how, you know, death to Israel, we hate Israel, but it's going to be, again, lip service, and it's not going to be direct attacks that are going to trigger an Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Yeah, so uh, last time we talked, I asked you about World War III, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that your stance is you don't think a World War III will happen anytime soon because people will be content with their uh, small wars here and there. And like you just talked about the relationship between Hamas and Hezbollah. And you know, like, they just want like the money flowing and the arms flowing so that you don't think anything will pop off. Um, um, and I like that's kind of I mean, like I the only hope I have. Off already. <laughs> Say it again? Yeah. There, I, I think things are already popping off. They're just popping off in a local way. I don't think there's going to be a through line between all of the world's wars. So there's not going to be a world war, but the world will be at war. I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. indefinitely. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So I, I ask that because I'm like, that's the only hope I have is that it, <laughs> you know, like that the world will always be at war, but not a world war. And it won't, it won't, like 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 Hezbollah, you know they're awful, but they're rational enough to not get us involved, right? Is that what we're resting our hat on here? Well, as long as they don't have the money to, because remember Hezbollah and the Iranian government were responsible for the deadliest terror attack on the Western Hemisphere before 9-11, which was in Argentina. And a lot of people don't even remember this. And in 1994, um, Iran bombed an Israeli social club in Buenos Aires, and they killed, I think, 81 people. So um, when Iran and its, uh, and its sort of allies and Hezbollah, when they can kill outside of their region, they will do it. But it's always a money issue. So the reason the Middle East was so peaceful under Trump was he cut off all the money flows. He sanctioned Venezuela, for example. He, sa- he 
declared the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps a terror organization. He cut off the money. So as long as they don't have the money to do what they want to do, they're a low-level threat. But then Biden comes in and gives them $6 billion. <laughs> you know, and what, what does that turn into? Yeah. It turns into a bigger attacks further away from home. Crazy. Uh, what's Russia's latest moves with all this? So um, Vladimir Putin came out and said that if you want to help Palestinians, then one great way to do it is to invade Ukraine, <laughs> which is really self-serving. Um, he, he literally said that um, terrorist attacks like the Hamas attack are not going to help Palestinians. What's going to help Palestinians is destroying the world order where America is in charge. And Russia is helping contribute to that by invading Ukraine. Um, so he somehow made it related to Ukraine um, to try to market that to Middle Easterners, I assume, who um, he wants to have as allies. Um, but that's kind of where Russia is on this. They're they're actively pro-Hamas, but they're also trying to keep their own populations down. We saw that horrible lynch mob in Dagestan last weekend where just a crowd of, of Russian Muslims were going around trying to find Jews and kill them. Um, Putin doesn't want that, so he's trying to curtail that. But any benefit that he can get out of this, he's very nakedly trying to, Why does um, he not, to grasp. Why does he not want that? Well, because he's supposed to be, you know, he sold himself as the protector of the world's Christians somehow, <laughs> which a lot of people unfortunately oh, yeah. believe. And if his Muslim populations in Dagestan and Chechnya think that he's a little too pro-Christian, then they're going to revolt, and that's going to be a huge problem. Oh, what crazy. Uh, all right, give me China. What's China been doing lately here? China, also vocally pro-Hamas, uh, but all they've been doing is calling for ceasefires. Um, their role is going to be elevated this week because on November 1st, they became the president of the Security Council, the UN Security Council. Oh, it used to be Brazil last month. Um, so now China's in charge of what is the UN going to do about Israel. So um, that's going to be a huge problem. The Security Council has done absolutely nothing. They keep vetoing each other. Um, the U.S. has vetoed the Russian resolutions defending Hamas. The Russians veto our resolutions defending Israel. Um, and on and on it goes. Um, so China's going to try to break that in the Palestinians' favor if they can. Any other country I'm missing here that you think is noteworthy in this situation? Um, I think just Saudi Arabia. Um, the, the Saudis are most worried about Iranian proxies like the Houthis in Yemen attacking them. And the Houthis just declared war on Israel a few days ago. Um, and I'm not sure what they can do just geographically. They're not that close to do much. But in order to try to hit Israel, they've been shooting rockets that have to fly over Saudi Arabia and their rockets are not that great. So they keep falling into Saudi Arabia. Um, so that's going to be another regional problem that is not directly related, but is definitely going to be inflamed by um, the Gaza conflict. Here's a question about our strength. Um, Dr. Gorka brought this up yesterday, and now I'm starting to see some news about it. Qatar. So I, and it's never clicked me. Like all, all these people are saying, oh, yeah, the Hamas leadership, they're living in luxury in Qatar. And you're like, well, hold on. Qatar's supposed to be like our butt. Like they're supposed to be our ally. Why are we not? Like what's going on there? They're, so Qatar is they want to be like the Switzerland of the Middle East. They play with everybody. They let everybody 
get along there. Um, they hosted talks between the Trump administration and the Taliban. The Taliban lived in luxury in Doha forever. Um, the the Hamas leadership lives in luxury there. Um, but they're, they they want their role to be the facilitator for anything. So if the United States wants to talk to any of these terror groups or if anybody in the West wants to actually hold discussions, you would do it in Doha. And And they're very proud of their role as that mediator and for whatever reason everyone tolerates it because we need we need a a middleman you know okay well are we are we okay are we okay with that like for some reason when you said that i was like oh that's kind of noble in a way i guess is that okay or are they (laughs) are they hiding behind that in their actual terribleness um, no, they're they're definitely hiding a lot of terribleness. We saw okay. all the human rights abuses during during the um, World Cup last year, which was a huge disgrace. And now Saudi Arabia is going to host it in 2034, by the way. Um, but yeah, they're they're definitely an Islamist, anti-American country. Um, they are just they. The way they like to play it is they don't like to be belligerent like the Taliban. They don't like to come out and just say death to America. They like to build expensive hotels and then have these terrorists live there and then say, you know, reach out to us and say, hey, if you want to send a message, we're, you know, we're willing to help. And so we tolerate it, I think, out of fear of what the alternative would be if we didn't have any conversations with these wow. leaders. What um, a play for so them. That's, that's the issue. What, what a smart play yep. from, from their perspective. Uh, the wonderful Francis Martel, Breitbart World Editor. No one's better. Thank you, Francis. Thank you so much for having me. Just tremendous. Um, one of these days, and it's okay. It's very okay. It's encouraged, actually. Francis is going to say, you know what? I don't know. I'm not sure. And I look forward to that day. Like, oh, I got her. I don't know if it'll ever happen, though. American made. I got American parts. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. On Monday's show, among other things, we're going to talk to Ohio Right to Life. Big vote on Tuesday in Ohio, which has ramifications for the entire country. If the pro-life cause wins, then Republicans across the country will be emboldened and empowered to take the right to li- the the the, the um, pro-life cause across the country for their uh, for the, their elections. Uh, and if the pro-life cause loses, then a bunch of Republicans are going to be scared and cowardly and not stand for life. So it's a big deal on Tuesday. We'll talk about it on Monday. Have a great weekend. Spread the word. <laughs>